economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs of reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Lorenza Antonucci. Lorenza is an associate professor and Birmingham fellow in the Department of Social Policy, Sociology and Criminology at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Her research and teaching focuses on the impact of European social policies on people's lives, and she's currently leading two major research projects, GigWell, about the gig economy, and proceed about the economic and cultural roots of populism in Europe. More than enough to talk about. Welcome to the podcast, Lorenza. Thank you, Gus. Thank you very much for hosting me. So first of all, of course, what was the first sports team you ever supported? Okay, so it's AC Milan. I know, you know, it's the Berlusconi's team, but I wasn't aware at the time when I picked it. And to be honest, it has most to do with the fact that there were three Dutch football players who really made the team big in the 80s, early 90s. Van Basten, Gullit, Rijkaard. And I remember that that was a big thing. And AC Milan was particularly good at that time. I'm not from the north, I'm from the south, but I just remember my best friend supporting AC Milan. And then I got stuck with it. So what is your favorite political song? So here, I was thinking about it. I picked a song. It's in, in Napolitan dialect. It's called Curre Curre Guayo, which is a kind of famous in Italy by 99 Posse. It's a song about growing up in the South, seeing that the state is kind of complicit with the level of illegal things happening in the South and trying to literally means run, run, boy, just literally just go your way and just do the best thing you can. And it talks about occupying houses and talks about basically what we were doing when we were young. We were just uh, a lot of this political socialization happened through occupied houses called Centri Sociali. I wasn't particularly active in it, but it was just an obvious, uh, you know, experience. And this song came before uh, Genova, the G8 in Genova. And it talks about the violence of the police against the young people who were politically active on the left. So it was very, yeah, it predicted a lot of the things that happened in Italy. It's, it's a very political song for my background, let's and say. For the younger listeners, that was about an anti-globalization protest where one of the protesters was killed by Italian police. Finally, what is your favorite political book? Yeah, I really struggle because all the books are political for me. But I, again, just thinking about the song I picked, I was thinking about Empire by Negri and Art. I think that's the first political book I really fell for, and I still use it recently for my teaching. It's not the easiest book. It's actually quite difficult, but I remember that people use it in political discussions outside academia. It's a little bit like the European Chomsky version, if you think about it, because he popularized the concept of the multitude, which is actually now the precariat. So it's quite similar to what we are talking about. A lot of your work focuses on the so-called gig economy, and that is a term that we see more and more often in the media, but also remains generally not defined. So what is the gig economy? 
Yeah, I think here you can use different definitions and just use it in a very broad way as people who work on for gigs, like singular pieces of work that get paid and they do it as in a self-employed way. But the way I use it specifically and the way it has emerged, it has to do with the development of technology as a way to find jobs. So gig economy is the gigs, the works that you get through an app generally a digital instrument just to find job and also that the app regulates the way you do your work. The concept of gigs has always existed. If you go to Naples, people have always been doing gigs, so informal work. But with the development of technology, now you have a certain more institutionalized way to find these gigs and you also have an app that acts as your employer, which is a big thing because it controls you and so you have a form of responsabilization because you're working for yourself legally, but without the control on the ways and the types of work that you conduct. So I guess most people will think uh, about something like Uber. So when and why did the gig economy emerge? And what size of the current economy in Britain or the US, for example, can be described as gig economy today? So, of course, Uber and Deliveroo are good examples. There are also other apps used by women, for example, in other sectors. I would say that, you know, the informal definition of the economy has always been there. Formal work has always existed. But in this specific definition with an app, I would say 10 years ago, because, you know, you, you have seen the rise of these uh, technological apps such as Uber. But as I say, there are other apps. I don't want to name and shame ever, anyone, but there's, for example, one called Elpling that you can use to do cleaning, to get cleaning jobs in the Netherlands, Italy too. But I would say also that with the pandemic, actually the gig economy has expanded a lot because a lot of the care jobs have been externalized through an app because it makes contact. It allows people to do also work without having close contact. And I think that's why it has boomed actually in the past years. Yeah, that's fascinating. Of course, also there are a lot of people have left the regular workforce, predominantly women, which will also have affected it. Now, how do workers in the gig economy differ from those in the traditional economy? So if for traditional economy, we mean people who are employed. So we're talking about people who are mostly self-employed or depending on the country, they can be employed with fixed term contracts. So their conditions are not totally unique because you can see similarities with people on renewable fixed term contracts, especially in Nordic countries. But they're quite peculiar because they don't have humans to deal with. They have an app that they use that highly controls the way they conduct their work, highly controls the type of incentives they have and the punishment because they can be kicked out from the app and excluded at any point, sometimes without explanation. So they really don't have much control about the modes and the forms of work. Also, the work depends on the availability of work through the app. So if the app doesn't invest so much in the marketing, the worker won't have access to work. So they really don't have a lot of direct control, but they have highly form of responsabilization because they need to use their own equipment. If something happens, it's down to them to actually fix it. If they have, for example, an accident at work, it's not clear, depending on countries, if they're going to receive any form of compensation or who's going to pay for that. So they have a higher level of responsabilization that, to be honest, 
you see in fixed-term contracts, but it's a lot more. And also the fact that they cannot contact the employers directly. It's highly confusing for them because sometimes you need help just to help you to conduct your work and you cannot easily access your employer. You have a customer service, a bot, a chat box, but you cannot really talk with them directly. Right. So recently we've seen some pushback against that. I remember reading an article about delivery personnel in the Netherlands, mostly cyclists in, I think it was Amsterdam, who created a union. I thought it was the Raging Riders. And in California, the state has actually forced Uber to make its workers into regular workers. Is there a pushback against the gig economy? My answer to that would be that even when they're employed, because we have seen with our researches in Sweden, Italy, UK, in Sweden, a lot of them are employed. It doesn't mean that their conditions improve because they're still on renewable fixed-term contracts. Yes, of course, they have a little bit more access to certain rights, but the way the system is shaped is in such a way that they actually escape a lot of the responsibility, if you look in detail. And sometimes it's actually better to be self-employed, like they're in the UK, because at least they can, they can use it when they do their tax returns, not to pay certain taxes. For example, to use their fixed term cost and just get some tax discounts. And they pay a lot less taxes if they're self-employed. So I would say, yes, there is a, of course, there is a tendency now to, you know, the, to want to unionize and there are lots of improvements. There is a EU directive that's been discussed about it. So there are improvements, but I would say that still the system allows companies to escape in any kind of work conditions, in work contractual, formal work conditions that the gig worker has at the moment. Because that's the advantage they have. That's what makes actually these companies very competitive in the market. That's the way you keep the cost down. Yeah, so I, I think we're just at the beginning of that. So if I understand it correctly, can we place then the emergence of the gig economy in the line of the deregulation that started under neoliberalism of the 80s, 90s? And this is kind of where the deregulation of labor and labor conditions come together with technology. Because to a certain extent, this is in line with a much longer process of undermining worker rights and worker guarantees. Yes, I would agree with that. I think it's a, it's an extreme form of the entrepreneurial uh, spirit that's been placed in the welfare state. The people have become increasingly individualized and responsible for their own welfare. And that is like the ultimate level because you're then responsible for finding your own uh, gigs at any point. You don't even have the security of your work. You need to constantly be active to find new gigs. I assume then that the gig worker is part of a larger category that is often termed the precariat. How do you define this group? What is the precariat and is there a prototypical precariat worker or is this group too diverse to even create such a stereotype? So I would say, yeah, the gig workers are a very extreme form of that. Maybe the precariat in the extreme conceptualization of the precariat. But, you know, if you look at the precariat by Guy Standing, what Guy Standing tries to do is to make precarity really more of a qualification than a noun. You know, that's why I don't use the precariat as a noun that much. It's more like a feature that people have 
and it's quite dynamic. And it has to do with the work insecurity that you experience when you are at work, not just when you are out of work. I think that is the really important contribution of that book that it shows you how you can actually be insecure when you are at work, when most people f- used to focus on the insecurity that people experience because they're out of work. That's been our you know obsession in policymaking for the past 30 years, put people back to work because that's the way you give them security. And that book shows that no, actually you have lots of insecurity when you're at work and also financial insecurity as well, not just work insecurity. So to answer to your question, it's a very broad term because you could apply to a lot of people at work, even if they are in jobs that were considered secure, if you look just at the tenure. It's also, if you look at the quality of job literature, the quality of work has been declining since 2008. And, you know, the euro crisis has actually left a really big scar much bigger than we think, because, you know, if you look at the level of unemployment, you know, unemployment levels have returned to an acceptable level, but it's the quality of work that has declined a lot since uh, 2008, 2010, let's say, when the euro crisis started. And what should we think about there in terms of like the quality of the job? Has it become more monotonous? Has it become more dangerous? So if you look at the items that we use also in our political research, we look at things like work-life balance, it has become much worse. Relationship with the management, you have a lot more control from management. You have a lot less freedom, decision-making. You have a lot less security. Or if you're going to stay to that sector, that specific part of the sector, you always have to learn new skills to just like readapt internally. Also, in terms of learning and just personal development, the scores went down. So these are the kind of dimension. That you, of course, income security as well. Income is a big part of that as well. You work more hours for less pay. That's also a very big part of that. So when we think about the precariat, are these mostly former working class? Are these mostly new and young workers? Or does this also apply to people that we would consider in middle class jobs? Part of my research has been contesting this thing of the working class in the past years because it's it's used especially in Anglo-Saxon countries as a term that people really identify with. But if you actually try to break down what that means, it's really hard to understand, especially from a southern perspective. I have to say this, as in certain parts of Europe, there's never been a process of industrialization, right? So we never had a working class, like in the south of Italy, there's never been industries, people were working in agriculture. So there's never been actually working class. I know in the north of Italy, it's a bit different. Class operaia is actually a very important concept. But anyway, no, the precariat is, I would say, kind of breaks into these cross-national differences and these demographic age characteristics. I interview in the gig world project lots of older gig world people really at different stages of life because their feature was that they were outsiders of the labor market. They could not access labor market in traditional ways. So they were just, you know, using the gigs, using the platforms to get access to work. So in that sense, it really cuts across different traditional class groups. But that is also the problem. If you look at the uh, Great British Class Survey by the uh, colleagues at the LSC, Mike Savage, they found a precariat class, but they also found a younger service workers class that showed some precarious features. So the younger people are definitely well represented by the term of precarity. I wanted to go to that element of class because in classic Marxist terms, the precariat falls outside of the traditional class struggle and thereby outside of the class struggle. 
And it reminded me of the lumpenproletariat that Marx writes about pretty negatively as this kind of group outside of the working class and obviously outside of capital, but which is seen as almost as negative and as, as problematic for the working class. Is the precariat the lumpenproletariat of the 21st century? Yes. So that would mean that we actually have a conscious working class in opposition to this. But do we really have it? Because a lot of people believe themselves to be working class in material terms are middle class or into what we call intermediate classes. But that's not a stigma because we can talk about the lowering intermediate classes. And I think we should be doing that because what I think what's emerging from me in class terms is that you have traditionally, say, social excluded groups that are similar to the what we call the squeeze middle, the lowering intermediate classes. And the precarity can apply to both groups. So it's actually potentially a great political phenomenon for parties because you can actually get people from different backgrounds, from different social classes, if you have the right way to call for their attention and just speak to these elements of precarity they experience in their life. So potentially it's a great thing. And you've seen it with the Brexit vote. It's one of the reasons why you can sway 50% of the vote because it does talk to this level of security and insecurity that speak to, I wouldn't say all people, but most people in different ways. Can you clarify that relationship to Brexit a bit more? In what way did the precariat see Brexit positive, negative, and why? So we didn't do any research on precarity back then, but what we did with Brexit was the article on the squeeze middle that showed that, no, Brexit was not the vote of the working class, it was the vote of the squeeze middle. So what we show is that it was the declining intermediate classes in education and income terms that was more important in quantitative terms to sway the vote towards Brexit. And so the opposition was with the people at the top not between the people at the bottom and the people in the middle. So on the one hand, we can say that the precariat is so diverse that it's hard to build what is traditionally seen as a class consciousness around it. On the other hand, you argue that it's also so broad now that it actually provides a large opportunity for political parties to address a broader group in classic kind of class terms through the situation, the precarious situation of work. Do you see any political parties that are actually addressing the precariat specifically? So addressing as in the sense of responding, I think we're very far away from that because at the moment it's more about using it to have political support. I see parties using it to have political support, the sense of security and security, but I don't see yet that we are in the situation where parties can respond directly. I think some parties, the social democratic parties, are probably starting to talk about it. But I'm not sure they are starting to identify the policies and the agendas that will respond. But in our research, we show that, you know, there is a link between supporting right-wing populists and radical left parties if you are precarious. Okay, so the precariat votes on average more for populist parties both of the right and the left. I can see the argument why they might vote, for example, for Syriza or Podemos. I cannot fully see why they would vote for a far-right party, except purely in terms of anti-establishment. They just hate the system, political and economic. But I don't think I've ever seen the far-right 
address the issue of precariat specifically. Do you see differences there? Are left populist parties like Syriza or Podemos supported more by precariat than right-wing populist parties, or doesn't that matter? So just to clarify, the way in the literature at the moment we understand the link between, say, precarity and political support is first symbolic, so no rational conscious vote, not like I'm voting from this party because they're going to address my issues, but more like symbolically as anti-establishment. Although, if you look at the agendas, and we discussed this in the article in the Netherlands and France, Front National and a lot of Dutch parties from the right have actually included more elements of chauvinist labor market protection in their agendas, which are very interesting. So there has been actually a bit of a literature on, okay, these radical right-wing parties are actually shifting more on the left on uh, the social labor market protection. And that is quite interesting. But also, I would say, to use sort of Roderick, that they offer, the left and the right offer two solutions, the radical left populist right and the radical left, two solutions to the globalization dilemmas that we face. So one is the solution of we stop borders. So we give you more security by actually making you the priorities of our labor market, you know, demands. And the other one is we redistribute more. And that's why we solve the globalization issue that we have right now. And of course, you can say that the first one is not really effective, but it does talk to a lot of voters because that's like an immediate way to respond to the level of insecurity that they face. So are there easy fixes, not perhaps for the whole problem of precariat, but some pretty basic changes that can be made that already remedy some of the worst consequences of the shift towards a more precariat labor force? Yes, so this shift towards the populist right and uh, radical left has not happened from nowhere. It is, you know, it, it's actually historically can be contextualized in the fact that the labor market and welfare state have changed a lot, especially since uh, 2010, the crisis. And it's very invisible because we don't see a lot of it, as I said before, to unemployment rates, but it's very visible in people's lives, labor market, financial lives. And that's why people have moved away from mainstream parties, both center-right and the center-left, which have dominated politics since the end of the Second World War. So it's really, I think it's especially very much to the social democrats to think about what they have failed in power since the 90s and how to change the policies. And of course, there is a lot you can do to restore labor market security. I think here you have two arguments. Labor market insecurity is inevitable. We're more globalized, so we're always going to have more precarity. I don't really believe that. I think you can have more regulations in the global south. You can have a globalized sort of world where you have more regulation, not just in the global north, also in the global south. But also you can do a lot more to update the welfare state. For example, you can have shorter, more transitional forms of social protection instead of like uh, the kind of social protection that you get once you get into the labor market. In traditional, you become employed and you access uh, labor market protection for life. You can also think about more short-term transitional instruments. So you can actually update a lot or you can use instruments across sectors. For example, that is one of the big issues at the moment in the continental Europe, that if you move sector, you lose contributions because contributions is attached to your sector. So it doesn't reflect the experience of the workers in the labor market. So there is a lot to do there to update the welfare state. And so this also means there's a big role for trade union, right? Because trade unions must also really struggle with the precariat. First of all, 
there's much less incentive for people in the precariat to be members of trade unions, in part because they don't benefit in the same way from it. And as you said, they move sectors. Do you feel that trade unions understand the challenge and have been able to find answers to, to accommodate, and also to become voices of the precariat? So I think there's been a lot of changes. First of all, since 2010, the role of trade unions has changed because through the European semester, and there is a lot of debate in EU social policy about it, the role of social partners. At that point, the EU really took a big role in implementing with, you know, reforms of the labor market across member states. And the role of social partners for many years during the crisis had changed in a way that social partners were not included. Like if you look at what happened in Portugal, it's been very remarkable the way that, you know, the role of the union has changed a lot, and which is also explains why now the center left has gained popularity because it went through that process. Yeah, when the unions were delegitimized for a long while. So after this phase, and also considering that some of the unions especially in the South, became more like pensioners' unions, you know, at one point. some Not all of them, but some of them represent more of the interest of, you know, all the voters who are either pensioners or about to retire. Then you have seen other unions emerging in the last years and a lot of more activity in, like, creating new unions for new workers, such as uh, platform workers. So I think this, this is a moment of change where you will see more unions coming up. And they have been also in in the UK, in South Europe, and the European Trade Union Institute, for example, is analyzing a lot of the changes across Europe or what's happening in terms of new unions. So I, I see a lot more interest in the past, say, two, three years. So I'm quite optimistic about new unions emerging. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the precariat? I think the greatest misunderstanding is that it's about uh, the length of contract. So that only refers to people who are on a fixed term contract. And that is a very extreme experience for people to have. While precarity is actually a lot more mainstream, as I said, it would actually be probably a majoritarian experience, not an experience for an extreme minority. And I think this is the kind of language that probably we need to, to review when we talk about precarity. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Lorenza. Thank you, Gus. Thank you for hosting me. You can follow Lorenza Antonucci on Twitter at, at SocialLore, S-O-C-I-A-L-L-O-R-E. And find more information on our research projects at www.gigwell.org and www.proceed.eu. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonuts with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Jack Fernandez for helping me with the editing. And I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Paul Newell. He went with Danny Baker. See you silly disco songs and really Melody Baker. I'm seeing Dad at Dunker. Playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.